אחד, יש אחד בורא עולם, ויש אחד, קוראים לו יאיר לפיד, שאמר, אני מוכן לוותר. ומי שמע על בן אדם שמגיע עם עוצמה, עם כוח ויכולות, ואומר, העוצמה שלנו היא ביכולת להקים ממשלה עבור המדינה. מספיק עם השטויות, הגיע הזמן לעבוד את הציבור. It's Aretz Election Overdose, Season 2, Episode 5, recording on Thursday, August the 4th. I'm Andrew Pfeffer, and with me is Dalia Shendlin. And you're still stuck with us for another three months until we discover what the heck Israel's so-called leaders are trying to do to us and themselves. So, Dalia, after five weeks of campaigning, are we any closer to an answer? I have to say, frankly, we are not any closer to an answer. There's still too many unknowns, still too much shuffling and rejiggering. Uh, the only thing different is that you sound a little bit frustrated with the level of leadership if you're calling them so-called. Well, do you see any leader material here? People do not look like leadership material until they are. I think 10 years ago, when Yesha Teed was established, it was very hard to see Yair Lapid as prime minister. And yet, here we are. Well... Maybe until they are or until they aren't. And then years later, we'll say, oh, that leader that we had then, he was so wonderful. Anyway, as always, it's tempting to say that nothing much happened in a week, still so early in the campaign, especially the first week of August, where you would expect most Israelis to tune out of politics. At least that's what many Israelis I met this week are saying. But actually, there's quite a bit that has been happening. We don't know yet how important any of this is. We had Likud. launch its economic plan, but who will remember any of the details by the time we go to polls on November the 1st. Yeshatid had an impressive campaign launch for its party members, but aren't they, like most of the Israeli middle class, about to go on their vacations in the next few days? We have the usual bickering within parties across the spectrum and in between parties which may or may not run together. That also feels like a half-hearted attempt to go through the motions, since we still have nearly six weeks to go before the lists. need to be filed with the Central Election Commission. Hey, what do you feel, Dalia? How important is any of this right now? Or would we and our listeners be much better off taking a time out from election overs and flying off to sit martinis on a beach in the Italian Riviera? Well, that's always a good thing to do, especially if they're very, very dirty martinis. However, I would say that The actual developments right now are not as important as I think the environment around them and what people are saying. What I found interesting about the two particular issues that you mentioned, which we will be talking about, is that we hear the messages coming out of both of those two biggest parties. So Netanyahu presenting an economic plan, you're absolutely right. The voters probably won't remember the details, but they probably will remember what Netanyahu insisted on saying over and over again in his presentation, which is that the previous government was unstable and what Israel needs is a stable government that he can provide in order to do these things. And he even said, I'm going to tell you this over and over. You don't need to look that far to hear what his message is going to be. Yair Lapid started out his launch by saying, we started in Tiberias and we started in Dimona and we built a grassroots party. That's clearly going to be a big part of his message. We've done the work of building a party of the grassroots over the next number of years. And I think that these actual events are not that important, but we're hearing the shape that the campaign messages are going to be taking. And I think we're also seeing some of that in the smaller parties too, but we'll get into it as we go on. I just want to make one comment about Netanyahu's economic plan. And we'll talk about this more in depth in an episode very soon when we'll discuss, I think, hopefully at length and at depth, the whole... In great length. Great length and incredible depth. 
the issue of how economics is or is not influencing this election campaign. But Netanyahu put out a, a pretty ambitious plan. We don't have to go through it, but very quickly, bringing down prices, house prices, cost of living, and uh, enabling every Israeli from the age of zero to, to attend uh, kindergarten and school for free of charge. Now, the th- first thing you'll be, you would be asking if this was an election happening in any other normal country was, where's the money going to come from? So Netanyahu has one very magic answer to that always. Taxation will be getting so much money from taxes that we'll be able to pay for it all. But he's also going to slash taxes. So how's he going to pay for that? Good question. The answers are not in the Netanyahu economic plan. I wonder about that, too. And I have to say that after listening to all the details of Netanyahu's economic plan, I thought, gee, of course I would want my water bill, my gas bill, my electricity bill, my food bill to go down. It sounds great. But then I reread Naftali Bennett's economic plan before one of the previous elections. The Singapore Singapore plan. plan. Where's that today? Where's Singapore today? I mean, he talked about lots of great things. He talked about slashing taxes and slashing the public sector, being like Reagan and Thatcher. Not that it's my cup of tea, but... It didn't seem to have any impact on Naftali Bennett's leadership or on the Israeli economy. Like I said, we'll talk about that in, in an episode very soon. Anything interesting at the Yeshatid launch besides Lapid's 10-year story of how he made a party and now he's prime minister, which is quite impressive, we have to admit. I do think it's quite impressive. I guess, again, the optics of it were sort of interesting. There were only about a thousand people there, which isn't very big, but also reflects what we're talking about, which is that this isn't a very exciting or attentive time for the Israeli voters. So maybe they sort of thought, you know, we'll start modest and just sound sort of enthusiastic. And then there was this strange theological comment by Israel's economy minister from Yeshatid, Anshul. Tell us about her theological vision for Yeshatid. I mean, it was a bit strange. Anna Balbivai said something like, there is God and then there's Yair Lapid. And what was she actually trying to say? People think that Anna Balbivai is uh, someone who has to be reckoned with. She was the first female major general in the Israeli army. She's been in politics for quite a while now. To be honest, I always find her speeches rather incoherent. I'm so glad you said that because when I heard the comment, I thought this is interesting, but what actually is she trying to say? It's not very clear, but what she has done is she's sort of given an opening to all the pro-Netanyahu camp who saying, you always say that we are BB's team, that we're blind devotees of Benjamin Netanyahu, and now look at you, look how you're doing the same thing with Yair Lapid, so don't call us names anymore. And to be fair, they have a point. Maybe. I think the other funny thing that came out of it, or at least cute thing, was that Yair Lapid took a dig at Netanyahu by saying, oh, look, he finally learned how to fill a tank now that the gas prices have gone down because gas prices did go down this week. And so it's kind of reminding people that Netanyahu, you know, these images of Netanyahu, that he is personally cheap, sort of the character flaws. And I guess we're going to see some of those personal and personality attacks over the course of the next few months as well. Yeah, we've got a lot to look forward to in the next three months. Another thing we have to look forward to is the fracas on the far right, the religious Zionist list, which still doesn't seem to be able to get their act together. It looked earlier in the week as if there was a plan of how they would merge their candidates list and which of the two main parties in religious Zionism, Betel Smotrich's National Union and Itamar Bengvi's Jewish Power, were going to uh, divide the candidate slate between them. That Those plans seem to have fallen through already, and we're seeing a lot of negative briefing and open uh, uh, open attacks between the two sides in the media in the last couple of days. 
everyone still assumes that they'll somehow manage to get things together. But a couple of people who know and who talk to Smotrich and Benkvir have said to me in, in the last few days that they actually think this is serious, that both these politi- politicians are now convinced that they can... They can, they can cross the threshold on their own if they run on their own. Benvir especially has seen the, the polls that say that if he was leading the party, or if he was running on his own, they would have more seats than, than Smotrich's faction. And this has gone to their head, and they both think that they deserve a, a bigger part of the, of the candidates' list. And it, it does seem to be a real argument for now. I guess what I want to ask is that, you know, do you think that if they break up and they run separately, do you think that they would cross the threshold? Because... I know that we've had discussions before about the differences between their constituencies, but I think broadly in Israeli society, they are seen to represent politically and ideologically similar, you know, approaches to Israeli life. And remember that Itamar Ben-Gvir and his Jewish power party did not cross the threshold in previous elections. So why do they now think that they can both get 3.25% of the vote. That means they think that together, 7.5% of the voters are willing to vote for them. Yes, the policies of these two parties are very similar. But the sociological makeup, maybe the micro-tribes that each of these candidates talk to and, and identify with them are not the same. I think there is sufficient political ground for both of these parties to uh, to eke out threshold results. But... It's a risk. It certainly is a risk for one of them if they don't run together. Can you try to just give me one example or a little, let's say, call it a teaser for our audiences. What is the difference that you see between their constituencies or their ideology, if you see any major difference in their ideology? Smotrich, even though he's very far to the right, still represents... I mean, very far to the right might be the understatement of the year. Still represents a establishment national Zionist religious camp or group, even though a lot of those voters may not be as far right as he is. He still is from that establishment, from the yeshivas, from 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 the education system. His father was a senior rabbi in the in the education. He still actually still is in that system. He's part of the establishment of of the Nitit Kippa Kippa group. Whereas Itamar Ben-Gvir is or has always been from the from the Kahanist stream, which has always been an anti-establishment, and that draws a quite diverse range of groups who feel like outsiders, Chabadnikim, and people who would normally vote for Likud, but feel Likud is, too, is now too establishment for them, and many other groups that we, we, sh- we, should talk, we should talk about more at length when we have the time. But, the, but these are not the same. I know that from the outside, from secular uh, left-wing perspective, they look all the same, but they really are quite different. And do you think there's circulation between them, is my real question. Not so much as you may expect, perhaps more than in the past, but still they are quite distinct groups within that very bizarre almost uh, part of the Israeli spectrum, political spectrum. But yes, sociologically, they are different still. Fair enough. What else is going on on the left side of the map? I was kind of struck by what to me seems quite a high level of toxicity in the sniping between the two uh, candidates to be the next leader of Meretz, especially from Yair Golan, from his direction, it seemed quite, I wouldn't say quite vicious, but quite strong. I, I, I don't think, I don't remember previous Meretz uh, leadership races being this, uh, this extreme. Well, I think the interesting thing about the particular direction of his sniping was that he tried to attack, I mean, attack, you know, you're, you're calling it sniping. He criticized Zahava Galon, they're in a, they are in a leadership competition, for being the kind of leader who takes on what he called sort of esoteric and not very important issues in Israeli life, while he wants to focus 
on existential problems like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and security and, you know, big issues. And he took a lot of flack for that comment. And I think rightfully so, because Meretz has always been the party that stands for a sort of worldview that involves bigger issues, well, all issues, that is not only focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, even though, of course, they are often branded by the big you know, center and right wing communities in Israel as being on the far left for that reason. But, you know, the d- big debate sort of centered on the symbolic issue, for example, of the climate crisis. I mean, if your Ir Golan thinks that that's an esoteric issue, it's just an interesting contrast with the rest of the world, certainly in you know Western countries that you know understand that that is a very existential issue. I agree. And to say that it's not an existential issue, <laughs> it really is mind boggling. I invite anybody who thinks that to come visit Tel Aviv right now and feel how hot it is. But the, the broader point that Yair Golan has been making is that Meretz does indeed have a problem in making it clear to voters what are the cl- what are the really important things it's standing for and make it and make it special where i think yeah has gone very wrong is that in the absence of a true green party in israel i think this is certainly something that merits should be making its own issue and, and it, for the last year merits has had has held the environment ministry to, to, you could argue whether tammy zamberg has done a good job as the minister certainly there's certainly some valid arguments there that she hasn't been very effective but the, that doesn't change the fact that this certainly should and could be a merits uh, issue and there is a there is a vacuum in this in, on the israeli political spectrum which is i think it's merits shaped that, that that's a space that they could totally fill. And for Yagran to say this is something esoteric that Merit shouldn't be doing with does seem to be, uh, a, a, I think he seems to be shooting himself in the foot. And from what, from what little polling there is, it looks like he's, he's fighting a losing battle anyway against Zava Galon. Yeah, I think the other issue where he kind of branded it as esoteric, but that Merit really does have kind of cornered the market on the liberal approach to this is LGBT. I mean, to talk about that as if gender and LGBT is sort of a marginal thing, you know, it may not be the number one concern for Israelis and polling shows that it is definitely not. It's far from the number one concern. But there it is becoming a big wedge issue between the liberal and conservative communities in Israel. It is becoming a barometer and a dividing line between the religious parties and the secular parties. And who's going to hold up that issue if not merits? So, you know, I guess what he's really doing is calling into question what merits really is in the Israeli political spectrum to do? What is its role? Which is a very important debate to be having. And I think that it wouldn't be a bad idea for there to be a new candidate challenging Zavagon, because Zavagon, as our, as our listeners I'm sure know, is a former leader now making a comeback. And for all the nostalgia that people so suddenly have of how wonderful things were when she was a leader, she wasn't a very good leader when it came to boosting merits of standing and getting more votes she would she failed at that like the leader that followed her Nitan Horowitz failed as well but the point is is that this is a debate that should be happening what does merit stand for it's not happening because Ava Golan is just saying merits choseret merit is coming back as if we all know what merits means Yair Golan is asking the right questions He's just, he just doesn't seem to have the answers that's a very good point and I also think that maybe this debate is going to be great for merits because you know a good real deep disagreement over this kind of, you know, what do we mean? What do we stand for? What is our role is kind of a good way to galvanize voters. So maybe it will help enthusiasm around merits. Who knows? Hopefully, but it doesn't seem yet to be working that well. Very quick mention of the new parties that we already have. I've already counted, I think, three 
interesting ones. Uh, what have you noticed? Are they interesting? I mean, they may be interesting for the moment because you think, well, if this party, this new party, and we have several of them, we have uh, the, the announcement that Eli Avidar, who is a breakaway from Israel Biteno and Avigdor Lieberman's party, will be establishing his own party. And we have the party being established by Avram Borg and Talib Asana, which is another, yet another attempt at a Jewish Arab party. Always a good thing, never crosses the threshold or rarely. Amnon Zalicha, who had a party devoted to economic policy, other kind of, I don't know, political orphans right now. Amichai Shikli and Moshe Saada, these personalities that have been kind of important on the right wing. Shikli being infamous for breaking away from Yamina before the new government was formed in protest at Yamina's agreeing to go in with left-wing parties. And Moshe Saada, the person we talked about last time, who has been very critical from inside the police internal investigation unit. And there's been a lot of speculation or some speculation over the last week about which parties he might be joining. I don't, I don't think we know if any of these are important yet. What I think is important is that every election cycle from 1949 to 2022, we have between 20 and 40 parties competing in Israeli elections. And yet two things happen dependably in every election. And that is that voters say we have nobody to vote for. And some political people who think they know better than everybody else say I can establish a better party than the 20 to 40 that already exist. What else do you make of this, Angel? To be honest, very little. I don't think any of these parties are going to cross the threshold. Some of them... Then why are we talking about it? <laughs> some of them will drop out. I think we're talking about it because it's part of the silly season and it makes things a bit a bit amusing. But I agree with you. It's not it's not a great thing when it, you know, in making Israeli politics any better, though. One would argue that the, the current party of power, Yishatid, came about in very much the same way. A personality, a, a well-known personality, decided he wanted a party. And now it's the second... Largest party in Israel and the party of power. So I, you know, we can dismiss this phenomenon as much as we want. Occasionally, one of these parties comes along and actually does something. But perhaps that's another matter for a different episode. You just raised a good point. Why is it that Yair Lapid's party, which was never, in fairness, just named, you know, Yair Lapid, it was always starting with a different name, which is important. But why did which he succeed? Which does rhyme with Yair Lapid on purpose, yeah. Yeah, right. That's their slogan. That was the slogan they started talking about yesterday in the rally. Yesh Atid, you know, Prime Minister Yair Lapid. But why did his party work? And we know that none of these are going to work. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. A part of them due to the fact that he planned this very well for years and years, but because he chose the precise time and point when it would work, and it did work, he won 19 seats. Last thing that happened this week, actually it happened last week, but it happened after we recorded uh, last week's episode, and I think it's worth a quick mention, was Benny Begin's announcement that he is leaving politics. This is not the first announcement. I think it's his third or fourth announcement that he's leaving politics in his long career. But he said that this time he's going to turn 80 in a few months, and therefore he doesn't think he should be taking upon himself another political mission at this age, and he is leaving politics. And I think that's very interesting because when Benny Begin joined politics in 1987, it was the same time that another newcomer came along, Benjamin Netanyahu, and they were both seen as the next big thing in Israeli politics, Netanyahu, because he was this swashbuckling, fast-talking, charismatic Israeli diplomat that people had been waiting for him to join politics. Silver-tongued. Some would say fork-tongued. And Benny Begin was had none of these qualities that Netanyahu has, but he had one major quality. He was the son of Menachem Begin. He still is the son of Menachem Begin, of course. <laughs> then, still alive, 
the mythical founder of Likud, which who had led Likud from its days in, well, before it was Likud, and even before it was a political party, from the days of the underground, from the Irgun underground, in uh, the mandatory period, and then many years when it was Cherut, and it was languishing on the opposition backbenches in the wilderness, and finally in 1977 to power. And Benny Begin, when he came along, for many, many Likud, Nikim, this was the second coming of the Messiah. He was the son of Begin. He looked like Begin. He spoke like Begin without the charisma, however, of Menachem Begin. Is that the main thing? He just doesn't quite have the charisma of his father. Is that why he never quite got to be as important as he should have been, which I think is what you're about to explain to us? Well, charisma is not just something that you have by coincidence. Charisma is something that's also linked to a burning desire to become a leader. And Menachem Begin, sorry, Benny Begin was never that. His father, of course, was. He was always very reluctant. He took his time entering politics. He was, he, he's ponderous. He doesn't, he doesn't give you the sense of any burning desire to do anything, to be honest, except Except maybe be a geologist. To study rocks and the depths of the earth. And that's that's what he's passionate about. Now, he's very ideological. He always has been. He's very principled. He paid a lot in his career, sacrificed a lot for his principles. But he never quite got anywhere. But is it really his fault that he's not charismatic enough? Or is it simply a statement that in politics over the last few decades, what works is populism and extremism and being a provocateur? The kinds of things he has always really been very, very careful to not do. And he's wanted to portray that he's the opposite of that. He's wanted to portray, I'm a pragmatic, thoughtful, judicious kind of, you know, political person who has a measure of dignity. And I'm going to keep the, what we call in Hebrew, itzugiyut and mamlachtiyut, but I'm not sure how to translate those things. Decorum and... Decorum, that's a great word. That's what he's tried to portray. And maybe that just doesn't work in politics of the last couple of decades. I think it's not just populism. I don't think every leader who gives voters and listeners a feeling of their passion is necessarily a populist. He just doesn't communicate. He's burning to to lead the country, and you need to do that. It's not. It, it doesn't have to be through populism, but you still have to give that feeling to, to your voters, and he never has. You need passion, if not populism. You could do with both, but at least one of them. <laughs> That's how we understand Israeli politics today. Yes. And one event that's going to happen next week, which we should uh, note, and that's Labour's primaries for its candidate list, and a lot is going to be happening there. Since we're mentioning Labour, something you want to say, Dalia? I guess I need to say this. Yes, this is a disclosure that given that I have a day job as a public opinion researcher and a political consultant, I have worked on eight political campaigns in Israel since 1999. I'm about to work on my ninth. I will be doing one survey as an outside consultant for the Labour Party. So that is my disclosure, and this will certainly not influence my analysis in any way, but it is part of what I do for a living. We will keep you true, Dalia. So what's interesting, I think, about the Labour primaries is that last Labour primaries, a year and a half ago, before the previous election, the only Knesset member was Mirav Michaeli. The other two who were in the previous Knesset were Amir Peretz and Itzik Shmuli, who both resigned. There was... There was space. If Labour were going to get in, there would be new Knesset members, and every candidate who ran actually had, uh, I think, had a realistic chance of uh, of getting onto a realistic spot in the list. This time around, Labour currently polling about five or six in most polls, some even f- just just four, and it has 
It has a number of serving Knesset members. It has all those who served in the current Knesset. None of them have resigned. And it actually has more than were elected because of the Norwegian law, which allowed ministers to resign and be replaced by new Knesset members. So there's at least seven or eight Knesset members already there. We know that incumbents usually do much better in, in primaries. So we've got about 30 or 40 hopefuls running in this primaries without much of a chance, as far as it looks. What do you think, Dalia? Well, I think, first of all, we're going to have a fascinating analysis of the results next week. Secondly, I think that there is a sense that this is a party that underwent what we thought a year ago was some sort of a resurrection because the party was widely anticipated to be on the verge of collapse. And then with uh, the new leader, Meirab Michaeli, uh, there was a sense of revival and excitement. And I think that those current Knesset members are probably banking on leveraging that, you know, the residual or remaining lingering effects of that sense of we are new, we are young, we are fresh, we have, we still have a lot of work to do. We had our first chance in government in, in quite a while. And I think that they're hoping that that, you know, maintains the enthusiasm to keep them in high spots on the list. Yeah, I, like you said, we'll have a much deeper analysis of the result next week. And since we mentioned Labour's polls, this is a great jump off point to the main topic of this week. And this is what are the polls telling us right now? And because we have Labour's pollster, uh, sorry, our pollster with us today, Dalia Shendlin. Dalia Shendlin, Dr. Dalia Shendlin, what are the polls telling us now? What kind of polls do we have? How should we take them seriously at all? Yeah, I'm putting on my pollster hat for this. You didn't have it until now? It's always there. I wear all my hats at once. I'm just putting this one on top. This one, my pollster hat is now winning the top spot on the list. You know, what I want to say is we've been talking about polls every week, and we also qualify it every week by saying, well, they really aren't that important for now. They just give us these general directions. And sure enough, the few polls that we had this week, it might have been only one or two new ones, are essentially saying the same thing regarding the possibility of building a coalition around Netanyahu or not Netanyahu, with one exception. And that is that the new party established by Ayelet Shaked, together with Yoaz Hendel, in some poll, in, you know, in one poll has not crossed the threshold, in another poll it does cross the threshold. And when it crosses the threshold and gets four seats, the Netanyahu bloc basically starts with 59 and maybe has another four. So, but those are so minimal. And these are such immediate polls we don't know how much the voters are paying attention. They're small samples. And the question is, how much should we trust them? And that's the deep dive of our week. We're going to talk about when you should trust polls, when you shouldn't, why everybody's so confused about this, and the different kinds of polls that you should or shouldn't trust. Anshul, I just want to start off by asking you, since you're not a pollster, and this is like a great opportunity for me to think about how journalists who are such a conduit for how the voters will read polls, how do you use polls when you are putting together a political analysis column well let's be honest most polls in the israeli media exist for one reason they exist to fill time on television it's a cheap way for the main tv channels to just fill seven or eight minutes of airtime. they order up a poll they all have on retainer obviously polling companies so they can order up polls almost whenever they want and there's no big no big news today let's have a poll so as someone who works in print journalism yes print still exists and i don't have the need to fill up airtime i have to admit i'm i'm rather dismissive of the polls right now i don't think that you know as we as you said they don't teach us something we don't know about the political scene we know more or less where the divide is we know what Netanyahu, Netanyahu camp needs to get a majority and what are the factors whether it's 
parties not crossing the the threshold and therefore seats votes and seats being lost or the turnout in various communities especially the arab community which could totally change the picture we know those factors but we can't really predict what's going to happen because even the best polls in the world can't tell you whether a party like for example merits which may be hovering just above the electoral threshold do they have those 3.25 percent or they are they a bit lacking and we know that's the situation. There's not, the pulse is not going to retest anything new. And we also know the fluctuation in turnout in the Arab sector. Can a pulse tell us with any degree of reliability where it's where it's heading in this election? I do think that pollsters can be a little more predictive of that, although in general, I would say polls are not great for election forecasts. And I think that part of the confusion in other countries, too, is the, you know, the question of whether polls tell us what we are seeing now and trends that have happened up until now, or whether they can be used to develop forecast models, which is all the rage in the U.S. And I think the latter is very mistaken direction for polls. But if you do in-depth polling, you can get a deeper sense of the factors contributing to whether there is a tendency for, for example, the Arab citizens of Israel to go vote or not. You don't need just one question in a poll for that. You need a lot more. You need to do focus groups. You need to talk to people. You need to ask a number of different questions in polls about why they might or might not vote, what factors might influence their vote, what kinds of things make it easy for them to vote. And once you do all of that, you can have a better indication. But we've raised many issues. One of the reasons why polls are not super predictive in Israel is not only what's happening among the voters and what a poll can or can't pick up on, but of course, for Israel, for Israel, coalition building is all about party leaders. And no poll can tell you what's going on inside the head of Ayala Chaked, who will be if she crosses the threshold, some sort of a kingmaker. So that's another qualification. But I do think that it's worth understanding the kinds of polls that we are able to see in the media, the kinds of polls that you said are used by the media to fill up time, get grab some headlines. And I agree with you. I just think that's a normal thing to do. It's not cynical necessarily. That's only one kind of polling. They are pretty shallow. They've got the head, the horse race breakdowns. Maybe they have a question about who's better suited to be prime minister, which is nice. But since we don't have direct elections in Israel, it's not a great measure of what's going on politically. But then we have other kinds of polls that go much deeper and would get at the kinds of things I talked about to look at the broader context. Um, Some of those are public. Some of them are not. But that is exactly the problem. The problem is, is that Polling companies are doing all these polls that you're talking about, these in-depth focus groups. What are different parts of the Israeli electorate thinking? Do they think they'll go and vote? And what's going to make them, what's motivating them to vote or stay at home? All those things would be extremely useful as a journalist if I had access to them. But we have very little of of that on display. That's usually being kept as internal polls for the parties themselves. Occasionally, a bit of that gets out into media. Usually, it's very selective. Usually, it's leaked by one of the parties because it's useful for them to, for a specific data point or factoid to come out. And you know, that doesn't lead to much confidence in, in this in this whole business. And I don't think it's the it's not necessarily the pollster's fault, but there is a whole since Israeli politics is in many ways underfunded, and we have a relatively small polling community who have who, who to survive need to take money both from the media and from the parties themselves. And often more than one party, I should say, because there's only a few polling companies that specialize in political research, and they often, most of them, end up working for more than one parties at once in the same election cycle. I mean, it's not like in the, in, in the U.S. where you you know a certain pollster is a Republican or is a Democrat, and they work for candidates at different levels of either the Republican or the Democrat parties, and so on. We don't have any of this here, and 
to my mind, it's make, it, it makes it very difficult to rely on polls. And also, after every single election, we know the stories that come out of how various parties used their polling information. This kind of time lag that we have between when the the parties who are spending much more money on this get to see the the, the polling and when it leaks out to, to the to the to the to the public and this kind of i think is makes it so much easier easier to to manipulate where, where i mean I, as a journalist i hate any law which denies you of, of information but there, i think there is some point to the, you know, these purges that you're not allowed to to publish a poll in x number of days before the election because Really, we are so open to manipulation here. We are. And that is a law that people should know exists in Israel that several days before the election, there's a blackout period and no polls are allowed to be published. You can still do the internal polls. But I guess the theory is that people shouldn't be influenced by polling at the very last minute. Although it's very clear that voters are influenced by polling throughout the entire election campaign. They will make their decision about whether to vote for a party, very much often on the left, based on whether they think they're going to fall below the threshold. That's the merits conundrum. Or whether they want to strengthen a strong party because they think that a party like Yishatid might be gaining ground or that they want Likud to be the top party. So people d- rely on polls very much. And I, I do want to pick up on the point that you mentioned about the internal polls. These are really important. And to my mind, they really represent a conundrum. These are sometimes the best polls. They're the most in-depth. They have the best samples. They're most. They're the most methodical and you know sort of meticulous in terms of sample building and deepest, and they have the deepest analysis, the cross-tabulations, the breakdowns of you know, different communities and their change changes over time. They're not built for sensational headlines, but precisely because they are intended to develop party strategy, the parties are very, very strict about not releasing them, except when one or two questions might serve their interests. And then they do exactly what you said. They leak them. And then, and then the poor consumer is left saying, I'm supposed to listen to information about a poll and I can't see the survey. I can't read the questions. I can't see the data. And the methodology is not transparent. And I recommend always for good polling consumption as a citizen, as a reader, always look for surveys that are transparent. So this puts me in a bind. I mean, I just wish the public could see all the richness and depth of some of those internal polls. But luckily, there are some public polls that are much more in depth and they are very accessible. So since we're going to be talking about poll <laughs> polling for the entire next three months and even after the election we'll be asking how well did the polling stand up or how badly did they do well i'm being optimistic what would you recommend our listeners look at over the next three months about the polls in israel what can we still learn over the next three months that will be useful i mean when i hear people say the polls are meaningless i don't believe that either i think that they're always useful for looking at trends so for one thing never trust one survey look for two or three surveys around the same time to see if any one finding seems consistent. And that's a pretty good indication that it's probably consistent. Look for averages. Don't look at one number. You know, if uh, Likud is pulling 40 seats one day, I wouldn't believe it. But if you look at the average over the last week or two weeks, that's more uh, dependable. And definitely look for trajectories, which is not the same as a trend. A trend just means more than one survey showed the same thing. But a trajectory shows which direction that's going, up, down, staying the same. I think those things are a little more dependable than, of course, any one survey of five or 600 people. That's a big thing. And the other thing is always look, again, for uh, transparency. In other words, look who ordered the survey. Try to look at the organization that did the data collection to see if it's a legitimate company. But more important, was it a news media uh, body that, or- that 
commission the survey? Does that news is that news media body affiliated with the left, right, or center? Because those kinds of things can always somehow seep into the results. I'm not saying anybody cooks the numbers, but who ordered the survey often has something to do with the kinds of questions they ask beyond the horse race stuff, of course. Horse race questions are pretty straightforward. However, translating data into mandate models, right, percentages of people who respond that they're going to vote, you know, Shas or uh, Ayelet Shaked, translating that into seats involves a little bit of, you know, um, I, would, I don't want to say arbitrary, but decision making along the way that is not necessarily rule governed. Is that a better way of saying it? You mean voodoo mathematics? Kind of. And the reason is because a lot of people, especially at this stage, are undecided. What do you do with those undecided people? How do you break them down in a survey? But seriously, how many Israelis after four elections, less than four years now, now number five, how many undecideds? Okay, people may be deliberating between merits and labor, or merits and labor and yeshatid, and on the other hand, people may be between Likud and Shas, or or, uh, or, or the religious or the Zionism, Jew, or, or the Jewish super supremacists of, of, of religious Zionism. I mean, these are all, but these are w- within the blocks. Is there anybody still undecided between a pro Netanyahu to an anti Netanyahu party? Yes and no. There's very little movement between the right versus the center left block. And for the purposes of this question of floating voters, the real divide is between the right wing parties and the center plus left wing parties. And there there isn't much mobility between them. But of course, there is some because there are parties kind of a jumble of parties now in the center right or moderate right or trying to portray themselves in the moderate right and you know in the previous cycles they went on a pro or anti Netanyahu platform and then right wingers had to decide do i vote by my ideology or do i vote by pro or anti bibi now yelich shaked's party is not being completely open exactly about whether she'll go on Netanyahu <laughs> that's or that's not that's an understatement so yeah. right so there's a lot of dilemmas here and i think there is movement within those parties of the, I would say, center and right of center. One thing I think is very important is that there is a lot more data out there than you see from regular media polling with the mandate models. And that is great polling being done, for example, by the Israel Democracy Institute. Big shout out here. They've been doing polling. They've been mining their data, putting together the last 10 surveys, looking at samples of thousands of people aggregated and doing really in-depth stuff on the identity of the population, the ideology, which demographic groups are going in which direction. And there are some surprises in there. I agree. I've seen that data. It is fascinating. And I think that is in itself a whole other subject of of who the Israeli electorate are that we will need to discuss pretty soon. But for now, I think we'll have to wrap up this fascinating segment about polling because we've still got a bit more to do before we say bye to our listeners. Just a bit more. Yes, so we still have a bit more. What, uh, What time is it? What time is it? Tick, 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 tock. It's party time. Yes, and this is all yours, Dahlia, as well. So Okay, I have a party animal this week. You know, I just want to note that this party animal section has evolved into a bit of a quiz show. And I think that I've observed that in each episode so far, both Angela and I end up not knowing the answer to the other person's questions. So if there's questions we don't know the answer to, you can be assured that you are getting very insidery, wonky trivia knowledge about Israeli politics. Now, this week, I want to talk about a party that, unlike our usual topic of the smallest, most esoteric parties, it's simply a very esoteric part of Israeli history. We usually say that no Israeli party has ever won a majority of seats, but there was a party that held a majority of the Knesset seats. And Angel, I have a feeling you're going to break the losing streak because I think you probably know this. You got this, right? I think this was Ma'arach in 73, 4. 
so close. It is Ma'arach, but it was 1969. And the reason is, no, I mean, really, you basically got it right. And naturally, that was the one party at the center of Israel's practically one-party political system. What happened was, after 1965, and after, of course, the 1967 war, Mapai, the forerunner of labor, merged with its longtime left-wing competitor, Mapam. Mapai had 45 seats in 1965, and after merging with Mapam, it then had 53 seats because Mapam held eight. But David Ben-Gurion had by then split off into a smaller party called Rafi, They had won 10 seats in 1965, and they also merged. So by the time all of these parties merged ahead of the 1969 election, they held 63 seats, which makes them the only party, as far as I know, ever to hold a majority in the Israeli parliament. But still no party has ever won a majority. It's still true that no party's ever won a majority based on the choice of the voters. And the other interesting thing is that in the 1969 elections, the alignment won the most seats ever. 56, which sounds really impressive, tantalizingly close to that magical 61 formula, but it was actually a loss of about 10%. The lesson is that merged parties usually, not always, but usually do worse together than their separate Knesset strength. Angel, what do you think of that? I think that you're obviously right when it comes to the fact that merged parties rarely surpass what the separate parties had uh, previously. But at the same time, it's not always the number of seats. It's what you can do with them. And very often, a small number of seats, as we saw in this election, as in the, we saw in the previous election, with Naftali Bennett winning only seven seats and becoming prime minister, it's all about positioning. And quite often, a small number of seats, if they're in the right p- place on the political spectrum, or if they're what's needed to uh, complete a majority at a specific moment in time, they could be worth much more than a larger number of seats. So bigger is not necessarily better? And that's, <laughs> and that's Party Animals for this week. And that's a wrap for episode five of Ella Harris Election Overdose. Please visit us on harris.com where you can read all the latest developments on the election and no doubt more interesting stuff on a host of more other more interesting topics. Our excellent producer was Shania Viram. Our editor is Maya Benissan, and my co-host and our house pollster was Dalia Shendin. Speaking to you from the bowels of Haaretz Towers in Tel Aviv, I'm Anshul Pfeffer, wishing you a relaxing August from somewhere on the Mediterranean. And for those of you fasting on Tisha B'Av, may it be meaningful and not too arduous. We'll be back to you next Thursday with another dose. Shabbat Shalom and have a great weekend. Bye.